Ladies and gentlemen, how exciting. How exciting. Andy McCluskey, OMD, 40 years. Yes, Peter, it is 40 years and hello, good to see you again. That's a great start to an interview. 40 years. And so much is happening this year. I mean, you've been on a, on a roll for a long time, but this year is the big one, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's incredible. We've got, you know, a box set album. We've got a 40th singer. We've got a tour coming out. We we started the 40th year with playing with the Philharmonic Orchestra, which you were at the concert last October. It's, um, yeah, I've got 80 gigs before Christmas and <laughs> a, few, a few more next year. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm keeping busy. Now, as you dance a lot, how are your legs these days? Um, well, courtesy of somebody who told me about some very interesting medication that they take, that I now take, uh, whose name will be remain, you know, thanks, Pete. Um, oh, yeah. My knee's not doing too bad, actually, but, uh, you know, the way I dance on stage, it's still... Listen, let's just put it this way. My rock and roll drug of choice these days is a cortisone injection. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> right. Looking back, did you have any idea where you were going to finish up? Oh, God, no. I mean, Orchestral Manoeuvres in the Dark, first of all, ridiculous, preposterous name. It didn't matter because there was going to be one concert. We dared ourselves to play Eric's because we were, you know, we were punters at Eric's. Like everybody else in, in Eric's was in a band. Um, and you, we just decided, we dared to finally get up and do our electronic music. The stuff that Paul and I had been writing in his mother's back room for years, but we hadn't dared to do it our way just the two of us and purely electronic so yeah we 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 got up there october the 12th 1978 and dared to do one gig and if somebody had told me that the band would last for 40 years i would have thought they were barking mad which which direction were you going in music within yourself what were you listening to before you became omd very limited palette actually I, most music i didn't like uh, so specifically, literally on one hand, uh, David Bowie, Roxy Music, Velvet Underground, Stro uh, Brian Eno, um, and German bands like Kraftwerk and Neu, and that was about it. I thought everything else was was rubbish. So we were we were inspired by a very tight palette of of influences, and then Paul and I just started making weird noises in his mother's back room when she was at work on a Saturday. And it was pretty abstract, largely because we didn't have any instruments to begin with. We were just making weird noises. Um, our mates thought we were nuts. They were all into, you know, Genesis, the Eagles, Pink Floyd. But, yeah, finally in 78, we decided we were going to go out on stage and we were a two-piece because nobody else wanted to play with us. Wow. And we, we borrowed our friend's tape recorder, made some backing tracks and turned up at Eric's. How did you become friends with Paul? for the band Paul turned up at my primary school Great Mel's County Primary School at the age of seven um, his father had passed away when he was two and then sadly his sister died when he was seven and his mother came to live in Wirral because her sister was here I think she basically came for some moral and emotional support which is understandable so Paul came to my school when he was seven but he was a year below me so we knew each other you know we played footy at the lunchtime and stuff like that but it wasn't until we were um I was 16 he was 15 that he there was a knock on the door at my house um I saved up all my birthday money when I was 16 and bought a bass guitar and as you do 
I walked around the park in Mel's with the bass guitar over my shoulder. You know, oh, this! Oh, it's my bass guitar. You, you noticed, did you? Um, so there was a knock on the door, and Paul, uh, with his mates from school, um, said, um, "These are my mates. They're, uh, I've seen you with a bass guitar. They need a bass player. Do you want to join?" So that's when the music started. But Paul was just the roadie. Yeah. He, uh, as in, he didn't have. He didn't actually own an instrument, so he just hung around with the band. <laughs> Looking back over 40 years, why have you and Paul worked? Why has it stayed together so well? What's the chemistry? We're different to each other, and we respect that we complement each other. I can do things he can't do, and vice versa. Um, I think also, you know, we're different personalities as well. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely type A. I'm bossy. I'm a control freak. He's a little bit more passive. He'll, um, he'll let me do. You know, he he. Tr- the, I think the thing is, he trusts my vision. Paul is the more intuitive musician. Paul will come up with something, and I, and I will just thank my lucky stars that I get to make songs out of two people's ideas, mine and his. Um, and it's just it's just worked out well for a long time. When you write music, I've always wanted to ask people like you this: Is it difficult not to be? Well, you 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 not persuaded you're swayed by some music but is it difficult not to nick chords or nick music to sound like music you know let me give an example when the beatles were out there was a lot of things similar to the beatles oasis to me were very similar to the beatles Mm -hmm, do you know what i'm trying to say i think um you're obviously influenced the people who influenced us however were playing a when we first started this is they were playing a sophisticated level of music and they had, I mean they had synthesizers and things that we couldn't afford you know I mean we somebody once described that you know, the the keyboards that Paul played in our early gigs as looking like they'd come out of a skip at the back of Argos and they did look like that we we were ploughing our own furrow really and also we couldn't play. We learned to play as we started writing songs, so it was very minimal, very simple, um, and it wasn't ever intended to be a career. It was just, it was just our hobby. We, we didn't actually know we were writing what would be pop songs. We were surprised when somebody said we were a pop group because we thought we were experimental. <laughs> but we, you know, you, you, yeah, you listen to things, you take influences and you try to disguise it. <laughs> Over 40 years, you've been very private, which is fantastic. You've kept your private life very private. And I certainly won't go into it now in any shape or form. Uh, but I have always admired you for that. You've never crossed that line. But I will ask you one question. You have children. Mm. Has it been a pressure for you to have children because they want to go in the music industry? Or would you persuade them not to? Or would you encourage it? I... Um I retired from performing when my son was born and I was off the road uh, for 11, 12 years. Um, when he was 11 and his younger sister was eight um, and they didn't seem to need me around as much and I was fed up of trying to help other people, um, I unretired myself. James is my son. Um, he is a musician. <laughs> He is a bass player. Um, he is an incredible songwriter and has a wonderful band um, who will be supporting us on our UK tour this wow. year. Um, he's not the lead singer, which I think helps, so he's not going to have that pressure of comparison. 
And believe me, if I, if I didn't think they actually had great songs, I would be as diplomatically as possible trying to tell him that maybe he should be thinking about Plan B. But they do have great songs, and who knows? But the music industry is a very different beast to the one I got into, and it's really hard. It's interesting just interrupting you there, saying that, because if he's on tour with you, you, you owe it to your fans not to put anybody... Ooh. not good supporting you just because because yeah. so many people do do that as you know yeah. or um, have done over they're not the going to suffer a crap support no. band due to nepotism no no, no. <laughs> no. The, the awful thing that just come into my mind was Max Bygraves bringing his son onto the Palladium oh, uh, Matt Monroe bringing his son onto the Palladium mm. they disappeared off I tell you what though you know just recently I saw Art Garfunkel perform and his son joined him and his son has the most beautiful voice. Really? Oh, it, I mean, it's. I presume it's as it's as crystal as our yeah. Garfunkel's vo- yeah. voice was back in the the sixties. Wow. So you know, it's it, it's not always a, uh, an embarrassing yeah. failure, but it's difficult. Um, you know, he. My son um, was in America for six years when my um, marriage ended. Um, which you know, but I don't talk about. Yeah, he came back at twenty-one, and he, you know, he started a bit late. He said, "I want to do music," and I said, "Okay, well, you know, you, I can't say no." But um, he, as as all good musicians have been, he's actually been a barman for the last two years. But he's he's yeah. ready to go now. Did it? Will it? Will it put pressure on the tour? Knowing he's on, would he be concerned because it's your son? Concerned about the band, or would you go, mm. "Wow, he's flying." Uh, listen, I, I always watch the support band from the from the wings of the stage every night, if only to gauge the vibe in the in the room. You know, I mean, you you, you perform publicly. It's always good to get a handle on what the audience is going to be like before you actually walk out. Yeah. Um, so I will do that. But you know what? They're um, they're doing this on their own. You know, there, there there is a small fee for the support band. They that's what they will get. They're not travelling on our bus. They're not staying in my hotel. They're going to do it their own way. And um, I'll, I'll see him at five o'clock when he comes to dinner at the, at the theatre. But he's got to do that apprenticeship. Hell you yeah. did it. We all did it. Yeah. And that's where, in my humble opinion, these programmes on television that make stars overnight are mm. actually doing our industry a disservice because to stand on stage when people are paid good money, they want to see two hours or an hour and a half... <laughs> And they want to be entertained, mm-hmm. not two songs to a backing ta- track. Well, I mean, I think that that's the difference between reality TV show uh, artists. They they can sing, they look pretty, they can dance a bit. Uh, you know, they will sell you a lovely backstory about you know how their granny just passed away, and now you know vote for me because it was her dream that I always perform live. Blah blah blah. But yeah, that they are. There is a place for them in the music industry, but they are essentially marionettes. Mm. Everybody else is pulling their string. Um, I'm and more in- also getting most. Of oh the money yeah, out yeah, of them. yeah. Mo- most of the money goes to everybody else, bar them. Yeah. Um, obviously, as somebody who wrote their own songs and was sort of you know master of our own musical destiny, for better or worse, I think it's I think it's important to me at least that uh, to to create something that is your own. Mm. Um, but you know, having said that, you know, Elvis didn't write his own songs, and he wasn't too bad. Not too bad. <laughs> now you say about your passion for your children. I know you're passionate about your children. Just staying with them for one more question: Was it a hard decision to retire? 
when your son was born? There was a confluence of various issues. Um, you know, I wanted, I didn't want to go on the road for six months at a time because I know that particularly the first few years, you miss things. You know, you're going to miss the first words, the first steps, the first, you know, and I just, I just, I wanted to be there. Um, I had just released an album in seventy uh, in, in eighty so ninety six, and um, it was you know I'd written a song called Walking on the Milky Way, which is as good a song as I've ever written, but I couldn't get it on Radio One because we weren't considered to be their target target age group audience because Radio One wouldn't play it, Woolworths wouldn't stock it and you will remember that 40% of the singles a week were sold on Saturday in Woolworths, you know, it was so um, we were fighting with our hands tied behind our back I, I, I just I, for a number of reasons but including that I wanted to see my children grow up I decided to step back and, and go into um, doing, doing other things yeah. Was it easy to come back when you decided to come out of retirement or was that quite daunting? It was bloody terrifying. Yeah. Um, I hadn't sung live for uh, 12 years. Um, I'd actually forgot. We went into the rehearsal room and I'd actually forgotten. You know, the tool of my trade, my SM58. I was like, yeah, um, oh, no, what do I do? And uh, Fine, after about 10 minutes, I went, oh, I know, you just shove it under your nose and shout. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. Um, but literally, we were in the rehearsal room the most important thing we had in the rehearsal room was a CD player. We were listening to our own records to work out, oh, it's in G, sorry, yeah, no, not A, it's in G, and then it goes to D, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, we, we had to learn everything from scratch. It Did was, you have sleepless nights over there? Uh, yeah, it was, it was really anxious. Um, we, put, we put nine gigs on sale, and we were terrified about that, but the tour sold out. There was an appetite, so that was a great relief. And I remember the first night in Dublin... You know, when you like a band and you ha they haven't played for a while and then the band gets back together again and plays, you go in hope but with fear and trepidation. Yeah. And we were the same. You know, we, we practised our socks off. We did not want to be bad on stage. And that first night in Dublin, I can remember, we went on stage absolutely bricking it. Mm. And we looked at the audience and they looked at us and there was this sort of like... Don't let us down. Don't let us down. Don't be rubbish. We love you guys. And over the the first song, you could see this dawning vision of the audience. They were looking at us going, oh, thank God, they can still play. Oh, he can still sing. Oh, this is going to be great. And there's this mantle of anxiety dropped away from us all. Looking back, when you came out of retirement, did you plan the time or was it just it happened and happened to fit in because it just flew out after that. Mm. You've never looked back. Was it just by chance you came out then? I think probably in the mid-90s, you know, we'd had uh, grunge had come along, then there was Britpop. And, and in those days, you know, people saw musical fashion, as they did all popular culture, as a timeline. You know, this is new, that's old, this replaces the old. But what, what had started to happen was we got into the postmodern era where popular culture was effectively eating its own history. And it's the same in music and art and architecture and fashion. Everything's going around in circles now. So people were saying, you know, oh, you know, you've been rehabilitated. Synthesizers are no longer the enemy now. You know, we like what you did. You've got some classic songs. Would you play? We're interested in you. Synthesizer music was coming back in the charts. I had people asking me, would you produce this new band? So I just 
you know, I got the catalyst was actually we got um got an email from a TV show in Germany called the Ultimate Chart Show, and they were doing a rundown of the 40 biggest hits in the last 40 years in Germany. Now, we were just lucky enough that Maid of Orléans, Joan of Arc, was the biggest selling single in Germany in 1982. So we were asked to come on the 82 to do the programme for the year 82. And I just phoned up Paul and I said, you know, we've said no to everything, but, you know, do you fancy a jolly to Germany for the weekend? <laughs> we get the lads together and just, you know. So we went and, you know, we did, a, we did two camera rehearsals on the Friday, we did the programme on the Saturday and we were sat in the bar in a nice hotel drinking free beer and I just said to the lads, six days work yesterday, three minutes, sorry, six, six hours, six minutes work yesterday, three minutes work today. Fancy doing this for a living again. <laughs> and we all said, yeah. Yeah, and uh, we had no idea. So, yeah, we put this tour on sale that, that had nine gigs that sold out and slowly but surely... It's grown. The big thing that I think that, that what we've tried to do, which perhaps is different from some of our contemporaries, and this isn't criticising them, is we have had three new albums that have been really well received, that have effectively contemporised us. You know, we, um, the quality was there, the fans and the critics responded. So we're not just a tribute band to ourselves. Now, I understand that, you know, if you can't write new material, don't, because... We've all been there. There's nothing worse than that. No. Now we're going to play, you know, five tracks from our new album. Everybody goes to the bar, you know. It's like, because it's, yeah. it's bound to be rubbish. We um, were conceited enough to think we could write some tunes and the people who come and see us live, um, they like them. And it also helps that we've got 15 hit singles we can throw into a live set as well, which, which we is, do. Yeah, yeah. Does it put pressure on you for the 40th year and album? by having three successful... Do you have a fear factor within yourself? I don't have a fear factor. I mean, I um, I did say to the band's manager um, writing songs is is actually the thing I love the most. I love... Stage is great because the rapport and the buzz of the audience. But the creative part of pulling something out of the well of your soul, your heart and your head that you think you have sculpted into something that orally sounds great is a real buzz. I get that still gives me the biggest kick, but it's Pete, it's hard after 40 odd years of writing songs, trying to do something that isn't a copy of something you've already done. That lyrically is something that's still fresh you know, I, I, I always complain to my friends in the visual art world. I said, you know, it's, it's much easier being a painter or a sculptor. You do variations on a theme and everybody goes, oh, yes, it's their distinctive style. You know, it's another bird. <laughs> if I keep writing Enola Gay, I'll, I'll get a lot of flack. You know. Enola Gay again. <laughs> you know, you know, you're not allowed yeah. to do variations on a theme. Yeah. Every song has to be a standalone tune with a different lyric and, 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 and a new melody. It's... Bloody hard. So whether I want to spend two years writing another great album, just now, you know, I'm 60 this year and I quite fancy actually taking a bit of time to smell some roses as well as being orchestral manoeuvres in the dark. Uh, and, you know, I want to spend some time with the people I love and my kids 
And so I'm, I'm striking a balance. I'm not fearful about the future. I mean, being in Orchestral Manoeuvres in the Dark right now is just the most blessed thing to be. We are... We can do anything we want. You know, we can we can play with the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra. We can play to a field of 50,000 people and back, bang out an hour of hits and they go crazy. We can do weird alternative stuff. You know, we played the Albert Hall playing the Dazzle Ships album, which nearly killed our career in 83. 5,000 people flew from all over the world to see the album that nearly killed us. Um, it's a great time to be in Orchestral Manoeuvres in the Dark, but i got other things to do as well. <laughs> 40 years ago, if I just said to you, you're going to be working uh, with this fabulous sound you've got at Butlins and on a cruise ship, mm-hmm. what would you have said to me 40 years ago? What a sellout! <laughs> Don't do it! What a, what a cop-out! What a cop-out! Um, and you've just done it, haven't you? Yeah, haven't it was been a, huge. It was a blast. Um, we take our music seriously. And we cherish having respect, but um, you know you can have fun as well. And and we we have a party on stage, particularly when we're just playing the hits. Um, come on, Pete! You know somebody gave us a not insignificant amount of money to do two hours work on a cruise around yeah. the Caribbean for yeah. seven days. Yeah. Oh, let me see. Shall we do it or shall we not? You know, but they were still your fans, mm. and the, and the Butlins one as well. It's still your fans. It's just mm-hmm. a venue that you go. What mm-hmm. you just said as a as a young teenager? Oh, oh. I'm not working. Oh no, I would no no. I, that would have been completely beneath me. No, I, I would have I would have thought what a sellout. But listen, when I was nineteen and we started Orchestra Moves in the Dark, the idea that I'd still be doing this now, the idea that I'd still be doing this into my thirties, I thought it was a young man's game. You know, once you've been in it for five years, you made a few albums. Like get off the get off the track. There's a new train coming down. To get out the way, you old people. I remember telling my friend when I was sat in the pub with him when I was 19, after we'd um, done a few gigs and we were going to release a single on Actress uh, on, on Factory, he said, oh, you're doing great and you've got a major deal. And I said, yeah, but you know what? If I'm still doing this when I'm 25, you can shoot me. Amazing. <laughs> Do you know what is amazing, Andy McCluskey, which I love, and I've been to several of your concerts now, and... Of your age, the group of age... I mean, you've got fabulous new um, fans, but your hardcore fans are incredibly old-fashioned, respectful audiences that listen and applaud as well as cheer, which is a lovely thing to see Mm -hmm. because, you know, you get these others screaming. I mean, one thing I hate in America is when somebody sings a song and they applaud 14 times in the song. Every time I think, (laughs) you just kill the song. I'm trying to listen to this music. Your audiences are incredibly respectful. Uh, Yeah, listen, we we are blessed that we have people who followed us for a long time and who who trust us that we will still deliver for them, that we will play the songs that they know and play them respectfully as well. That's another thing that gets me down is when bands go, oh, I'm bored of that. We don't want to play our biggest hit or, well, we're going to do an acoustic medley of the hits now. And you go, have some respect. Those songs have been good to you. Play them exactly as people remember them. So that's what we do. But um, 
No, they, I mean, boy, they. I mean, our our audiences still get up and have a boogie, oh, but but they but indeed. they pay attention and they listen as well. And 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 there's an incredibly broad demographic now. That that's the amazing thing is it's not just the people of our age coming to see us. Uh, it's it's nice that um, you know it, it, it's good. The only thing I'd say is I do increasingly get young people coming up to me going, "Oh my God, my mother loves your band. Can do? Can you can you speak to her on the phone? I get her on the phone now." Now that it's 40 years and now that I'm 60, the first one who says, oh, my God, my nan loves your music, then i really got to think seriously about it. Welcome to my world. (laughs) Welcome to my world. My nan loves you on radio. Yes, welcome to my world. So 40 years. Andy McCluskey, what's happening for 40 years? You've got a Mm. real year planned, haven't you? Yes, uh, so we started off with our um, orchestral uh, weekend with the Philharmonic, which was fantastic, was uh, back indeed. last year now. Um, I mean, basically, we're, like you, but we're just going to be 40 for the rest of our lives now, Pete. <laughs> we're going to milk it for all it's worth. Um, we've got, uh, listen, you're crazy. I mean, the, the, this year started out with a an exhibition in the Museum of Contemporary Art in Tucson, Arizona, where they turned the whole museum over into dazzle ships. They, they, this gigantic open space was just all dazzled. And I say the, the album that nearly killed us is now considered the masterpiece. Um, so we went to play, and the first time in our lives, we went to Peru and Chile. So, you know, 40 years in, we're still doing firsts, which is amazing. Let's just stay with dazzle yeah, ships before we go. Why did it turn around? Now, you must have had sleepless nights over it, mm-hmm. the worries, the fears. Why did it turn around, in your opinion? It took a long time. Um, You've got to remember that the, the first three albums we made, we were in control of our own destiny. Nobody told us what to sound like. Nobody told us what to write. We didn't really have an A&R man, which, for those who don't know, is the guy at the record company who kind of whose job it is to make sure the band deliver hits and sound like they're going to be in the charts. Nobody ever told us what to do. They just left us to it. But we went from a first album that went gold and had one hit on it. The second album had Enola Gay on it. The third album had Architecture Morality, sold five million had three top five hits in the UK. We felt that we had a Midas touch. Anything we, anything we do that is entirely of our own volition, we have these crazy ideas and people buy them. Great. So we went off on a further tangent with Dazzle Ships and we just went a little bit too far. We didn't sugarcoat the concept with the melodies that we normally do. We got a little bit more political, a little bit more intense. And... Um, yeah, a lot of people, I mean, we went from five million sales to uh, less than less than half a million. I mean, we lost 90% of our audience. Um, so it was terrifying. But, you know, record companies as they are li- like to uh, like to re-release. You know, the, the, the catalogue department is the sort of, you know, money for old rope departments. And they said, oh, you know, it's... Um, Dazzle Ships is going to be 25 years old, you know. Uh, would you know we're considering doing a special edition re-release? So do you know what? I had by this stage I'd learned how the music industry worked. Uh, I'd created Atomic Kit and I knew how to play the game. I wrote the press release, and I wow. said, I said in the press release, you know, the record that nearly killed their career commercially is now considered their fractured masterpiece. 
that phrase is now everywhere because lazy journalists cut and paste and Dazzle Ships is now our fractured masterpiece and everybody knows it. And, <laughs> and you told everybody. That's great. You heard it first here, ladies and gentlemen. I'm being brutally honest. Yeah. But, no, but, you, but you know what? When we meet other musicians, yeah. almost invariably, they go, oh, my God, the Dazzle Ships. I mean, even Mark Ronson, you know, who is m- biggest hit song producer in the world said i dazzle ships who knew I, this is amazing i knew they had hit songs but this is just magic so you know it, so many people come up to us and go dazzle ships changed my life what an amazing album what do you want out of this 40 years what would you like to be able to say i really can put it to bed now because we couldn't have done any better Oh, listen, there's a lot of things we could have done better. But, you know, you don't, you don't do something for 40 years and not make mistakes and have a few regrets. Um, but I think that the, the thing we're most grateful for is that we had the opportunity to start the band again, to play again, to, to tour with... I mean, you know, we are friends and our crew are our friends. We, we have a blast. It's, it's such a great job I have. And, and I get to walk out in front of several thousand people who just love what we do, who don't mind the way I dance. And um, even my kids, I mean, listen, even, even my youngest daughter who saw us play in Los Angeles earlier this year, I dared to say to her, so you haven't seen us for a few years, how was the gig? She said, it was good in so much as it didn't completely suck. <laughs> Which, coming from a 19-year-old daughter, that's the best compliment I'll ever get. <laughs> um, is the album put to bed? Yeah, the album's done. And actually, great new single as well called Don't Go, which um, we were... A couple of years ago when we had the, the Punishment of Luxury album, Paul and I were just having fun, as we always do, doing some B-sides and extra mixes and things. And we came up with this idea and... So after spending a few hours on it, I went, uh, you know what, Paul, let's hang on to this. This is too good to be a B-side. So we, we, we finally convened after we did a lot of touring the last couple of years, and um, it is a great song. So that's going to be our 40th single. Um, it won't trouble the charts. It probably won't get played on the radio, but um, we don't care. We, we're back now. Do you know what? It's like being 19 again. We can do what the hell we want. It is fantastic. And, and actually... As long as we're smart enough to be properly self-editing and not be indulgent and not be, you know, up our own backsides, uh, then I trust us that we will keep being good at being OMD and people will want to hear us. And you must be thrilled that stadiums are being filled with you. I mean, you're doing amazing sellout gigs all Mm -hmm. over the world. It ain't Mm -hmm. here. In Mm -hmm. Europe, you're huge. Mm -hmm. When I saw you with the Philharmonic Orchestra, I can't imagine how you felt. I know you've done it before, but I can't imagine when you've got those professional, unbelievable, (laughs) with a very strange... (laughs) <laughs> Musicians are a strange breed. Oh yeah, a strange breed. But you rocked the Philharmonic. You, it must be an amazing feeling. Well, a couple of things there. Firstly, we had done it before, so we had a little confidence that it would work. The first time we did it was terrifying. And yeah, you know, these. This is Paul Humphreys and Andrew McCluskey, who were both 
thrown out of the recorder group at Mel's County Primary School because, <laughs> do you know, because we couldn't play. We and what, amazingly, we had both adopted the same policy, which was to sit on a table of girls because they could play and mime. That, and, and when we got found out, we got booted out. So here we were. We can't read or write music. Our songs are the most minimal things you could write. Standing in front of 70 people who have tortured their bodies to become virtuoso musicians, we felt like complete charlatans, but they were very kind to us. It was great. When I went in last year to have the first discussions with the film, um, I was talking to um, Andrew Cornell and people there, and, and I, I said, oh, uh, gosh, there's a lot of people here today. Is, is this the youth orchestra? They went, no, that's the orchestra. Oh, God, I'm old. <laughs> Because they are getting younger. Yes. Um, but do you know what? I, I, I think, because you, you came to the first night out of yeah. the two and you very kindly texted me afterwards and said how wonderful the concert was. And I think I told you, I said, I said, you probably enjoyed it more than Paul and I did because we were flying by the seat of our pants. Yeah. We were terrified. You know, you don't get much rehearsal with an orchestra. And we... It's too expensive. Too right. <laughs> 70 people on a full day's pay for, for three hours' work. You yeah. know, you, you only do three rehearsals with them. Uh, but the problem is, they can sight-read. Paul and I have to commit it to memory. But all of these arrangements yeah. were new to us. So I was standing there really terrified, counting bars, trying to go, oh, I come in, oh, I come in, oh, no, I come in now, yeah, I'm in the right place, okay, you know, and sort of waving to the conductor behind me going, okay, I don't know where I am, just follow me, <laughs> you know, it's like, it was... It worked. It, oh, yeah, I mean, it, it, but you, you don't realise sometimes that, you know, people, even people who've been doing it for years are standing on a stage and we're projecting confidence and I'm hopefully singing in tune, but inside I'm terrified yeah, i can understand that i can relate to that completely but it worked i promise you your success and you are very successful uh, has given you the gift because you worked hard and i've got a few bob to enjoy your hobby art mm. you have an amazing collection you must be thrilled that you can go and buy something you've always wanted to do well, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm a failed artist. I had a place to go and do a BA in uh, specialising in sculpture, fine art degree, um, and took a gap year. And that was the year the band started. And I never went back to do my degree. So I've always had a passion for visual art. Um, strangely enough, yes, I collect paintings, quite specifically sort of northern industrial scenes, quite monochromatic. But... Um, I remember writing an essay for my A-level art project called Why Wall-Hung Art is Dead. So again, the young Andy would probably be most disappointed that the old Andy actually collects paintings and isn't into conceptual art. But I'm blessed. Um, but, you know, one thing I intend to do as well is when people collect paintings or have a collection in their own home of originals... The sad thing is, is that people can't see them. Now, I grew up going to the Walker Art Gallery. This is why I'm a trustee at the National Museums of Liverpool, supporting an institution that was my inspiration and my education when I was a kid. And I didn't have to pay to get in, which was amazing. So what I hope to do at some point next year, when, when I finish touring with the band, is actually I'm putting on an exhibition of all my paintings so that people can see them because it's rather selfish to have them just in my house. 
It's interesting you say that. I mean, we could talk about art for the next four hours because it's ridiculous. But there are people out there who are phenomenally wealthy that own a painting that is locked away mm -hmm. that nobody ever, ever sees. They mm -hmm. won't even show it because it's mine. It's a mm -hmm. passion. It's yeah. sad, that, isn't it? So I'm glad you're going to do that. Yeah, I mean, listen, I haven't got Leonardo's and Picasso's. No, but, you've got an interesting but, collection. But thank you. Um, and I, I just, I think that... Um, it would be nice to just uh, to, to let people see. You know, they'll probably think, God, what a weirdo. All these monochrome industrial landscapes with no people in. He's a strange fish, that Matlowski. But that's what art's about, <laughs> isn't it? Everybody has their own uh, taste in art. Do you know what? It resonates with my dark soul. And it, as long as the art resonates with my dark soul, the rest of me stays happy. <laughs> to, f to finish off, the hardest question in the world, it always is the hardest question, 40 sensational years, you've had your ups and downs in your private life, your ups and downs in your career, is the one highlight that you will never forget and one low point that you'll never forget? You know, most musicians cop out by saying, you know, oh, it's like being asked to choose your favourite child or something. Um can I give you a couple of highlights? Yeah, please. I will never, ever, ever forget in April 1979, first time in my life, holding in my hand electricity, our song that we'd written when we were 16 years old that was a record. Never in a million years could we have dreamt that something we wrote as a kids in Paul's mum's back room on a Saturday when she was working at the shop, that this song was going to be a real record. We'd made a record. That was just mind-blowing. Going to Italy for the first time and being asked to do a press conference. Well, press conference? Oh, yeah, sure, whatever. Go to the hotel. 30 or 40 people in a room were like, bloody hell, how did they persuade all this lot to come and see us? And the first question was, how does it feel to be number one in Italy? We were like, <laughs> what do you mean, number one? Is this, is this candid camera? What? And the record company went, no, surprise! In all the gays, number one. Oh, we, didn't, we, wow. we didn't want to tell you to spoil the surprise. We were like, you're kidding me, what? <laughs> that was pretty impressive. Um, I like that one. Yeah. <laughs> we, we had a song called Genetic Engineering, which was the lead single on Dazzle Ships. And... Um, the record company decided, well, the last album had three hits, so we'll spread it and we'll start with the less big one and then we'll go with um, Telegraph and then we'll go with Radio Waves because that's going to be the biggest hit. And we had an argument with Rhett Davis, who was the producer, because we had this huge military bass drum going boom, boom. And he said, you're going to have to turn the bass down. That's just too loud. We went, no, it sounds great. It's driving the track, driving the track. So we remember sitting in the car. I can't remember which DJ it was on Radio 1. Played and here's the new single from Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, Genetic Engineering. And the track comes in with this toy piano, and then this big bass drum landed. And you know what radio station compressors are like? It sucked the track off the radio, it disappeared. And, and Paul and I looked at each other and went, Okay, we're screwed. <laughs> that ain't gonna be a hit, is it? <laughs> that, was a, that was a real down moment hearing that and going. Oh, God, what have we done? <laughs> wow. And had no idea until you heard it. Yeah. And we, and, and we went, oh, Rhett was right. That bass drum is just killing the track on the radio. It kind of, it's like, it's like, just sucking it out of the radio. It was, yeah. So, uh, 
Oh, you know, yeah, there's been... Um, I think... I think realising in 96 as well that, that you know, I, I, I had to leave. I had to leave the stage um, because, you know, OK, yeah, my, James was born, but the band didn't seem to be... There seemed to be no interest in the band anymore. I thought, well, you know, it was over with, it was done. Um, and then incredibly... Just like, you know, you get these charity legends matches at Anfield now and everybody goes to see, you know, when I was 46 years old, somebody basically said, get your boots on, you're on the field again. (laughs) It's been amazing. When you're on stage, and and not now, but when you went back, did you go, oh, you? Are you still about? Oh, it's... And see all Mm -hmm. the faces that that loved you and still do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you... it was quite remarkable. I mean, people that used to um, that we used to see all the time. I mean, there was there was somebody who will remain nameless, but who is you know local, who used to come to all of our gigs in the eighties. Who now just happens to be one of the main writers on Coronation Street. You know, it's like, so you know, it's incredible how people's life journeys go. You know, um, yeah, bumping into people who you haven't seen for a long time. Interesting. Yeah, forty years. Congratulations. Can't wait to hear the whole of the new album. Uh, the tour is how many dates? Um, it's 80 from um, August, because we, we don't start in the UK and Europe with our own concerts. We're starting in America. We've got 30 gigs with the B-52s in Berlin doing a big summer festival package thing. Three bands also all celebrating their 40th anniversary. Wow. Yeah, that's some concert. That's some concert. <laughs> yeah, so um, that's going to be great fun. And then we come back and we start the European and British leg. And uh, I'm having Christmas off. Um, and then <laughs> we there were so many places to go. Yeah. Our our agent said, "Well, you know, you can't you can't go touring Europe in in December. It's too cold." Yeah, so so. Very cleverly, we're playing Lithuania and Scandinavia in January instead of December, where it'll be even colder. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, you know what? And then next summer, it's festival time again. Thousands of people in big fields. Great fun. Andy McCloskey, OMD, 40 years. Congratulations. Thank you, Peter.